Before continuing, this episode is a sequel to our first interview with Dr. Jacob Hamm, entitled Haunted by History, Love After Trauma. We strongly recommend that you first listen to episode eight, in which we are introduced to a couple that Dr. Hamm has been working with and who are struggling with connection in the face of jealousy rooted in childhood wounds and trauma. We are immensely grateful for the courage of this couple who have agreed to let us air their therapy session and believe we all can relate and learn from their work. We think of anger as like a bad, destructive thing that everyone should like learn to control. But there are so many things in the world that deserve outrage and anger and indignation. I think if we replaced the word anger with outrage and indignation, we would be more tolerant of it. Welcome to Lovelink. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Dr. Jacob Hamm is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with couples and trauma. He is the director of the Center for Child Trauma and Resilience and assistant clinical professor and supervisor at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Today he talks to us about trauma and relationships, how we develop certain attachment styles, and what that looks like in romantic relationships. We listen to a sequential therapy session with a couple to help us understand how attachment styles play out in real relationships, destructive ways we respond when we are triggered, and how to use anger effectively. You can learn more from him about attachment, trauma, and emotion from his educational videos and blog on his website, drjacobham.com. We are so excited to welcome back Dr. Jacob Ham. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for joining us again, Jacob. You're welcome. It's nice to have you back. It's nice to be here again. So last time, um, in the last episode, you introduced us to a couple uh, in which the woman and the couple had a pretty extensive trauma history that impacted how she related to her partner. So she gets easily triggered by her partner, feels threatened um, that he's going to abandon her. Uh, and so she ramps up in the relationship, um, and he is the one that seems to withdraw more in the relationship. Um, and we didn't talk too much about his trauma history, but certainly he also has his own trauma that he's contending with in the relationship. Um, and so part of what Simone and I have been talking about a little bit is the role of attachment in relationships, so attachment being the emotional bond that we have with our caregivers in childhood that then manifest in adulthood in various ways because the, way, the relationship we have with our parents influences how we think about ourselves in relationship, our expectations of others. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea of attachment and how it plays out in relationship and then maybe we can talk more about how it's playing out for this couple. Definitely. Um, I think that what you said about attachment being a pattern of relating is absolutely true. And the thing that I would add to that is that um, the attachment system only gets activated in the context of fear or threat or vulnerability. So can you quickly take us back to what, uh, in your view, what is attachment? How do you understand attachment? Because I think it's a psychological term that we as psychologists throw around a lot, but Truly. the general public maybe hasn't yeah, heard before. Yeah, I think in, in the general public sense, attachment is just like whether or not you're bonded to your family. But uh, from psychological research, it's really about like what the child does in reaction to threat. And uh, every small creature moves towards their caregiver whenever they're threatened because their caregiver's supposed to be the one that protects them um, you see this like starting at around a year whenever children suddenly have stranger anxiety or even when they're walking around and they meet new people then they either look towards their parent or they move a little bit towards their parent or they just like burrow themselves underneath their parents leg um, it's all a way to um, regulate the the possibility of threat it became a research topic because a woman named Mary Ainsworth started this 
research paradigm where she would bring mothers and babies in and she would ask the mother to leave for a minute and then come back after a short time and um, to really see how the baby reacted to it. And it's from that that attachment theory arose where she classified three different ways that babies react. The secure baby gets upset when the mother leaves and then when the mother comes back, then the baby reaches up for the mother to, for comfort and uh, allows the mother to comfort her. The, um, and then there's two insecure types of attachment, generally, at least in the beginning of the research. The first one is the avoidant baby that people probably know about. And this baby doesn't look like they care when the mother leaves. And when she comes back, they don't seem flustered at all about the reunion either. And um, Mary Ainsworth originally thought that these were the healthiest babies because they were just so calm all the time. But it's actually really problematic because they shouldn't be calm when their mother leaves. It's just too dangerous. And maybe they appear calm and on the inside they're feeling something different. That's right. That's the other thing that they found is that there's a lot of distress underneath that. And then um, the ambivalently insecurely attached babies get upset like the secure babies do when the mother leaves. And then when she comes back, Um, She asks to be picked up again, just like a secure baby. But then when she's being held, then she is inconsolable, doesn't allow her mother to console her and rejects all all bids for consolation. And I think there's plenty of like pop videos or material out there about how those can lead to being emotionally avoidant in relationships or um, maybe ambivalent. Um, And... I guess people think of ambivalent attachment as um, someone who pursues relationships, but it's way more complex than that because it's um, it's both pursuing it but never really feeling secure in that you have it. Um, and also being af- so afraid of the risk that you're going to leave that you don't actually like settle into it. And you're either sabotaging the relationship or... Um, anticipating that it's going to fall apart. So there's just constant insecurity and dread. And how do people develop these different attachment styles? I personally think that it's partly your temperament, like how consolable you come out as a baby. Um, But it really has to do with... um, Some of it, I think, has to do with um, whether you're attuned, whether the parents are attuned emotionally to the child's needs and is there for like a good amount of time for them and meets their needs. Mm. But then the research also says that um, there's this thing that Peter Fonagy calls mentalization, which is um, this idea that the parent wonders about the child's own state of mind. Like, oh, why are you crying? Are you crying because you're hungry? Is your diaper dirty? What's going on with you? And they try to read their baby's cues constantly. And that state of mind is the most, most predictive of whether a child has secure attachment. So being able to hold in mind the mind of another person, um, and in the case of the parent-child dynamic, it's critical that the parent be able to hold the child in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also in romantic relationships, exactly. that's important. Exactly. So... I mean, it sounds like when a parent has a hard time mentalizing their child's emotional experience, the the baby oftentimes develops this insecure attachment. Does that mean that it also makes it difficult for the child to to be able to mentalize towards others? Like, for example, when they become an adult and they're in an adult relationship, do they have a hard time mentalizing the other? And does that reflect part of their attachment style? That question is like, the perfect question to ask because um, that's actually the more important legacy of attachment experiences in life. Like, um, I think that people on superficially think that avoidant, like uh, the avoidant attachment style means that you kind of like don't want to be in relationships, but, um, and the ambivalent person may want to, and they're like constantly thinking that you're going to leave them and they're insecure. But um, the, um, the adult attachment research really, like if anyone's ever tried to learn to code the adult attachment, it's fascinating because it takes about a week. I went to Texas to learn how to be an attachment coder. And you basically read an hour long interview 
of people talking about their childhoods and their parents. And you don't really code for the types of experiences that they had as a child. You actually code for how they talk about their parents um, and, the, and the way that they talk. Like, um, it's super fascinating stuff. And you can see it in therapy. And I think you'll see it in the, in the tapes that we have, too. So for somebody who's securely attached in adulthood versus avoidantly attached in adulthood or anxiously attached, how, how do you um, see them talking about their parents? Or what, what are they saying about their parents that's different? Um, I'll start with the avoidant um, person. By the way, there's this whole spectrum and people aren't rigidly one or the other and people kind of move fluidly through them depending on how safe they feel in the moment or the quality of the relationship that they're in. Um, but the avoidant person generally has a shorter interview. They're, they're not going to use emotion-laden words. Um, their answers are really short and of kind of boring. Uh, the uh, people who look like they're secure but are still avoidant do these really subtle things where they give cliched answers like, oh, my childhood was wonderful. I had you know, piano lessons and violin lessons and all this other good stuff. And you can't really, when you ask them for like details of those memories, they have nothing. And so they, they use the cliches and the, like the good stories as another way to hide. Um, the other thing that's fascinating as a therapist, perhaps, is that um, you can feel avoidance because you um, are either bored in the conversation, you're thinking about other things, you might feel nervous and you don't know why, or you kind of don't like that person for some reason, you're just not drawn to them, their stories are really uninteresting. So you're, once, once your heart is attuned to this, you can like really pick up on attachment styles immediately. It sounds like in the avoidant attachment, it's, people don't feel safe to explore negative emotion right, at exactly. all, whereas secure people probably would feel right. safe to explore all the things. Right. The, the best example is that um, a secure person can have a really terrible childhood. And if you ask them about a memory of their childhood, then they might say, like, um, it always makes me upset when I think about this. And so they're super aware of their own, own emotional response to their memories. And then they might say something like, I'll just tell you like the highlights of what happened. No, I won't go into the gory details or something like that. Is the avoidant person conscious of avoiding? No, absolutely not. Um, I don't think anyone is conscious of, of what they're doing when they're doing it, when stress levels are high and vulnerability is high. So in some ways, avoiding is probably a pretty good protective way to avoid painful feelings. Absolutely. Is there, what, what are the consequences? Well, uh, I want to reiterate that uh, the avoidant and the ambivalent attachment styles are still adaptations to certain kinds of parenting. So they are still supposed to be positive. It's the way, like, the avoidant baby is trying to keep their mother close by not causing too much drama for their mother. They're like, okay, I'll be calm. I'll take care of you. Look, I'll just do a good job of being a good little boy or whatever. And that way you're going to still love me. Uh, the ambivalent baby is saying, sometimes you're there, sometimes you're not. So I'm going to just keep yelling and screaming to, to kind of get you to take care of me. I'm not going to give up on this. But I'm also scared that you're going to keep doing this. So it, it worries me. The ones that have I've seen in my office don't think that it's distressing. They, uh, they just, avoidant people show up in my practice because their partners are insisting that they come or their children are having issues and they just want me to fix their children. Uh, they're like, my life is fine. I, God, I have this guy who, um, his wife asked him how uh, their marriage was and he's like, it's great. We never fight. We, uh, I have a routine that I like. I do this every, every week. I do the same thing, and it feels really good. Our children are healthy and grown. It's good. And she herself is like so painfully depressed and so alone in the relationship. Um, and she's given up on trying to reach him. But to, and he, he knows that she's depressed, but he, doesn't, he can't grasp 
this, the depth of it and that it's caused by his inability to connect with her on an emotional level. Yeah, the avoidant people are very emotionally disconnected. You know, in addition, I think, to temperament and parenting, also, you know, as you're talking about this patient of yours, that there's a certain element of, like, socialization and culture that also kind of probably influences attachment style. And as you talk about this male patient, you know, men in our society are oftentimes socialized not to express emotion, to avoid. And so it probably lends itself more commonly in men to have this avoidance style as well. Yeah, and I think that the research showed that uh, Japanese people have a higher rate of avoidant attachment I or was something re- like that? Last night I was reading more about uh, different attachment styles and you know I'd read about there, these four different attachment styles in adulthood um, and I really think it's interesting to think about the distinction between um, fearful avoidance and dismissive avoidance in adulthood that even within within the avoidant attachment style there are these two forms of avoidance so in the fearful avoidant the fearful avoidant person um, has a negative view of self and other so they seek intimacy um, but they believe that they are inadequate and they also believe that they will be rejected in relationships so it's very dysregulating for them once they actually do get close to another person but they want it they know they want it they're conscious of wanting a relationship but it but then once it gets they get too close they back away Versus the dismissive person, which I think is what you were speaking to, is a person who actually has a lot of self-esteem themselves, and they have a pretty positive view of themselves, but still a belief that they will be rejected by the other or um, perhaps abandoned by the other. So the way that they operate is that they, you know, we'll talk about... um, being very independent and not needing another person. So it's almost like rationalizing themselves out of the relationship. Right. And like their need for intimacy is more at an unconscious level. And maybe like manif- I don't know, manifests in other ways um, yeah. that are less, less explicit. I think one of the insights that I had that I don't think I've ever read anywhere is that um, the avoidant people sublimate their need for relationship in, uh, in recognition through achievement. Mm. So they want to be admired from a distance. So they get the same kind of, it feels like love and through praise feels like love, but it's a weak approximation of it. So what about the preoccupied, anxious people? What happens there? Their interviews are really fascinating. They, um, their interviews go on and on and on. See, the, the way that you code the attachment interview is um, actually whether or not they violate norms of conversation. And so the preoccupied person will talk too long. They will ramble. They will uh, go off topic. They, uh, they just forget that you're in front of them. Um, that's the most important thing. I, the way that I can understand it is that in your head, when like vulnerability gets triggered, then there's almost a psychic reaching out towards your mom to make you feel better. And that immediately generates both yearning but anger. And then um, there's also the avoidance that kicks up. And so that avoidance gets thrust onto the conversational partner so that the interviewer is no longer present. And they're, they've disconnected from you, but in their head, they're reaching for their mother. And so they just their brain just like loses track of what's happening in the moment. The other um, way that I really look at ambivalence is, um, is the notion of hide-and-seek that I happened to read in some New York Times article that a psychotherapist had written. But it actually was, um, she was quoting the work of Winnicott, who had said, I don't, I don't remember if I said this in my last podcast. Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. But it's a great quote. The the quote that I had mentioned in the prior podcast about like um where Winnicott says it's a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. Yeah. I that's I just keep seeing that happen in th- in therapy constantly mm-hmm. where people make angry bids for connection but through the anger the bid becomes misunderstood and then they feel devastated that the bid's not received and then they feel like it becomes self-fulfilling that, um, see, you don't really love me because you, you can't see through my anger and see that I really am just asking for you to like, apologize or take care of me or something like that. My therapist said that to me once. 
she quoted Winnicott. I thought that was a very profound quote. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. sort of devastating. It's devastating. It's so yeah. sad. Yeah, the He's preoccupied uh, attachment is incredibly painfully sad. So let's listen to some of this clip of a couple that you've been seeing and that we listened to last time and talk a little bit about their attachment styles. Basically, my question is, she sees these things that belong to past girls and it makes her question her status as the girlfriend and if, if there's going to be continuity in that relationship in the, in, you know, here and could she turn out to if be she, one of the many girls that she's she going to be knickknacks in your drawers. Yeah. Right, right. And, then, and I ha- find it really hard to believe that that is not the case. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. You can't I mean, no, which, no, I couldn't like believe that, like wait, so that I wouldn't one? end up like that. My things will become orphans, and like I would become bless <coughs> you. Like, you think he's like some kind of bone collector? Like I don't want to be your souvenir. Got it. Like I'm done being somebody's souvenir. Right, but do you see how unfair that is? To assume that that's what's going on. That is unfair to assume as, and I said that I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel this way. It's unfair because like it all like you know that he's shown by action that it's not as such, but it still makes me feel that way. But that doesn't mean that he's responsible for fixing the way you're feeling. If you're being unfair, if he's done everything in his power to show you that that's not the case, and yet you you still punish well, him for it. Well, he didn't do everything per se because he's left over. But if you're gonna bones. condemn him for one act of omission, it's not one though. It's still it's such a benign thing. It's an it's a careless, thoughtless act that would require. I think it would require him like going through everything he owns to look for every knickknack when it's not worth it. When the but thing he doesn't that own the Metropolitan Museum. The thing that is worth it is to keep giving you love, not to get rid of knickknacks. To like plan. Yeah, I think exactly to your point. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh, of course, I agree that yes, that like these things should not be there. But, and I try to make them not be there. Of course, I've not been successful 100%, and there's been struggling pieces. And that so part I, you apologize yeah, for, I apologize. too. Yeah, I, I acknowledge that's, an, that's been an issue. But in my mind, I'm, I'm like, man, I'm sh- I've done everything I can. I've shown so much love, and yet she questions and, yeah. and works with this under this base case scenario that she could be one of them. And exactly. that, like, that the love there may or may not be or that she could just be a souvenir like to me that's really hurtful because I'm like that's it cheapens your love for her right exactly so then that makes me upset and so it should so then um, I feel like I should kind of set the stage for what we're going to dive into I think last time um, there was an iPad and she had seen old photos of him with another, his ex-girlfriend or something, and that had triggered a fight. Well, that's just been a recurring theme in our therapy sessions. Um, And I think that in the sessions that you see, um, she's extremely upset because she found new stuff. Um, He he apparently left a dress or something, right? He, He apparently left a dress in the closet and she saw it and so then it triggered her into thinking that um well we couldn't tell what it triggered her into but she felt the need to punish him severely for it that there was still more residual stuff from other girlfriends what do you think was going on for her internally as you were having that conversation about the, the items from past girlfriends? Like, what was her mentalization process? There was no mentalization process. She had been fully triggered into um, a state that I didn't understand for, that, for the first session. The sessions that we have with us is one where she just completely loses it and berates him for the whole session. And I, like, get activated and I'm fighting her the whole time. And then... Uh, I think the second session is where some of the revelations and insights come in. The gist of what she says 
is if, if do you remember i think some of it was like um part of it is that she doesn't want to be just another souvenir in his apartment um seeing that stuff i think it must just viscerally feel threatening like if you see another person's stuff in your partner's life still it's got to just act it's got to just biologically trigger some kind of possessiveness and jealousy but then she sees it as um he's gonna two-time her like other women's presence keeps sneaking into their relationship somehow even through these small items um so it must trigger some territorialness but she never talks about that abandonment fears that's what she primarily talks about is like you're gonna leave me aren't you i'm gonna become another trinket in your in, in your drawer the other thing that is happening is that um and she doesn't talk about this clearly or openly in front of him until much later and i force her to um is that she's projecting her own pattern of relationship onto him because because of her ambivalent attachment style she uh keeps keeps guys in rotation she has before him she had a history of of um seducing men to like her so that she feels like they're that she's desirable and that they like her but then she would keep them at a distance and immediately rotate to another guy if it got awkward or intense i think the word that she describes them as as are losers right these losers right yeah and i was curious about that whether she kind of thought they were losers and meaningless or if she kind of objectified them yes both. Both. Yeah. Exactly. It, it, she almost did like a male strategy where she would just like collect all these men as a, as a way to just feel like someone wants her, but still like um, she would have power over them because they liked her more than she liked them. Wait, why is that a male strategy? Because you hear about guys who are like just like getting notches on their bedpost. Like she was in a way just like getting notches as a way to feel desirable. In, in that sense. Well, one thing I noticed, too, that I imagine was really difficult was that she wanted to hear from her partner that these women were meaningless so that they wouldn't be threatening for her. And yet, by him saying that, that he doesn't have feelings for them anymore or that they aren't meaningful also reinforced this idea that she would then be one of them. Like, it seemed to be caught in both of these difficult positions. I know. It's almost like she wanted it to just implode like she did she wanted it to just be a total disaster just to confirm her worst fears about that's exactly what was happening the relationship she was so distressed that it was almost like she was in a state of panic it didn't really matter what the reasoning or rationale there was was. no reasoning or rationale and you see her constantly switching about what she's really upset about uh the core thing that she gets at eventually which i really thought was essential was that um she felt like if she feels pain then it's his job to fix it it doesn't matter whether it's justified or reasonable or not he needs to do everything in his power to fix it but she's not letting him which is the push and pull the hide and seek of the ambivalent attachment like i'm gonna keep like the mom's trying to pick you up but yet you're gonna still protest and never let that be comforting to you So going back to the spreadsheet. So on, on Thursday. I mean, this is like. So I have a. Everyone I have is saying iPad. that it's my fault. It's not my fault. No one said. No one said anything. But you're kind of saying like it's my fault. No, no, no actually, like let me, no. let me, let me be like more specific. Like you're kind of saying like your way is the good way and my way is no. the bad way. No, he's but, not. No, no, no. Oh. It makes me feel like you're saying that your way is the good way because you're like friends with all the people you've No, 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 no. Like, that's you. No, 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 no. You can't. Oh. No. That's you taking it the worst way possible when he's not saying no, that. No, I feel like it's an, it was an. It was a moment of trying to beg you to see him as being innocuous. Okay, and, I see it. No, you're not. Okay, then don't take it the wrong way. Okay, spend it your own fucking way. Okay. Like, I'm really fucking pissed off now. I am too. It's totally unfair to you. Okay, it's all my fault. Don't get angry. Don't get angry. 
like it, no, it only it reaches me. this point where she pushes me over the edge, and then she's I like, it. "Oh no, I'm sorry, I didn't." I didn't. I know. No, now you're fucking all like, "Oh, yeah, I'm fucking Rosie no. Daisy." I'm not no. Rosie Daisy. I'm dead Daisy. And what, what seems to be playing out for him internally? Because he seemed to me kind of, I don't know, he, at least in part of, in some of the session, uh, I guess it's the first session, he's quite calm, collected, quite rational. He's listening. He's not getting upset. And I was like, what is going on with him? I don't know. What, what, what is he feeling? I couldn't, I couldn't tell a, if he was calm or paralyzed. Or paralyzed, But yeah. he was quiet. Just, yeah. yeah, more like deer in the headlights. Yeah. Because she runs over him. Like, she constantly interrupts him. Uh, whenever he does try to respond, he's just, like, backpedaling, it, it feels like. Yeah, and paralyzed is more. Yeah. Thing, yeah. And, um, see, I think that his mentality is like, um, let's just be calm all the time. Let's always just have happiness. That's his life. That's his approach to life. So would you say he fits into an avoidant attachment style? Yeah, but he would slip by a lot of people as secure uh, because he's one of those super close to being secure looking because he's like, he's listening attentively. He's trying to like take her perspective, but it's such a cerebral, rational thing. And emotionally, he's probably in panic or paralyzed or just numb. I kept getting more activated than he did because I, whenever you're in the room with them, you see how he's floundering and she's berating him. And I can't abide by that kind of like injury happening in the session. And so I try to stop it as much as I can. And I also try to speak up on his behalf because he kept not doing it. And then I would notice that I'm doing it. And then I would say like, do you want to talk? Aren't you pissed? Don't you want to be the one to do this? And then he, he would just be flustered. And so I felt like I had to carry that for him. Hi, Lovelink listeners. Our group practice, Modern Mind, is located in New York City with offices in Brooklyn and Manhattan, offering in-person and virtual psychotherapy. We provide individual, couples, and group therapy, as well as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in conjunction with a psychiatry prescriber. Therapy is a powerful experience that can transform your life and help you live it to its full potential. We're here to help take you where you want to go. To find out more about our practice, visit www.modernmind.co or email info at modernmind.co to be connected with one of our therapists. Can you talk to us a little bit about your own emotional experience in the room with them? And even how your own attachment style is, is manifesting in, in the session. Okay, um, let's start with that then. I guess I started as extremely avoidant in my lifetime. I don't think I cried as a kid. And one time in high school, I think I almost cried. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. I wonder what this is. And I think there was a death. Intellectualizing yeah. it. Yeah, I think there was a death and I felt like, um, whoa, like. I think I'm supposed to cry here, but I don't feel like it. I wonder what's going on. Um, and it wasn't only, it was only after like severe loss and pain and then four years of really good therapy and other kinds of healing that the floodgates of emotionality opened up and I can't close it anymore. And like, I cried everything. Um, and I think that I've earned my secure attachment status through that. Um, meaning that even, well, not even for, except when I'm like at redlining at like a nine or so, I'm pretty aware of what's happening in me as well. And especially when I'm being a therapist then I'm intentionally like amping up my capacity to mentalize, not like if I'm at home with my partner, then I might not have that capacity for mentalization up as much. Um, so as it relates to, um, this session, I think that my own attachment pattern, my his historical avoidance style, didn't feel as present because I was actively doing the fighting. Um, I feel like with avoidant people, like with this guy, you have to get them to start fighting for relationships. 
Um, Do you think maybe you understood him more because you've had the experience of being more in an avoidant style? Like you don't, you don't see him as a secure person. You recognize that he has these avoidant patterns. And I mean, we're speaking about these in you know, pretty black and white terms, and obviously it's on the spectrum, but um, I wonder if you have a different understanding of him than maybe somebody who's not familiar with, with that way of relating to people. I think actually it's not my style, but it's the training that I got in that week of like coding the interviews that makes me attuned to these moments. Uh, in other kinds of psychotherapy research, they talk about ruptures in the relationship. And it's really fascinating that you can, you can feel when there's a rupture. And the ruptures are either avoidance, like withdrawal ruptures or aggressive ruptures. And you can just see them in the moment. Because you know, if your heart is open and like flowing with what's happening between people, then we all have very similar reactions to like poignant moments. And whenever the reaction is different from what my heart anticipates, anticipates it's going to be, then I feel like I can tell that there's some kind of move away from something. Oh, I had another profound experience. I had this father who was severely, severely, severely abused, and he loves his daughter, and she comes in for therapy, and he, he came in on her behalf because he loves her so much. And he said something to me that, was, that, that highlights this. He said... Um, I've done really, really, I've been really verbally abusive to my daughter. And then the next thing I thought he would say was, and that devastates me. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I recreated the abuse that I promised. I, would, I swore that I would never hurt my children, and I did it again. And maybe not physically, but verbally, I devastated them just as much as my parents did me physically. And instead he said, I might have hurt my daughter, but that's nothing compared to what I got. Wow. Hmm. And he and I got into a fight at some point in that therapy session. And then at some point, we got out of it and we're like, what's going on between us? And we were able to get him back calm. And I like needed to, at some point, I think I said, what's going on? Where are you at emotionally? He goes, I'm not feeling anything. And then I start to break down what he was doing and how he was posturing with me. And um, I got him to this place where he started to tear up a little bit. And that's as far as, that's as emotional as he's ever been uh, uh, apart from with his wife. I said, that's where you need to be. You need to be in a place where you're really hurting about this and it's gonna, it's gonna suck. I have to warn you, it's gonna be one of the most painful things you ever endure, but it's the only path to get to reclaim your attachment and your heart and be able to be a good dad to her. And he's willing to do it. And it's like the most, um, that's when my attachment stuff kicks in. Because whenever I see someone, especially a man, doing this hard work of overcoming their trauma trauma, and learn to reconnect emotionally, then I just feel such admiration and love for them in that moment. And I think what you're speaking to also really showed up in this session with her and her inability to kind of imagine the pain that he experienced when she was berating him or even de- acknowledge. I mean, there was a moment when you ask her, what's something positive? And she starts to describe this dinner with her and her mom and her partner and completely gets derailed and just talks about her difficult relationship to mom. Exactly. That it's hard to see outside of her suffering because she's struggling so much. Exactly. That was supposed to be a lovely moment. And I, I brought up a positive thing to kind of activate, activate prefrontal cortex and like all the positive things in their relationship. But as soon as the word mom was said, then her ambivalent attachment kicked in and she like went on a digression about her mother. And I just laughed at it because I, I saw it happening and I, I made her aware of the fact that she wasn't answering the question anymore. And then we went back. That's like a classic example of a preoccupied state of mind. It's like, like to me, that was like God turning water into wine. It was like a miraculous thing. Because like number one, like I was just so mortified because like I don't know how to act around her and like I can't please her so like 
so like in that part like in that part I like I'm always kind of in my head it's just like oh my god like I need to like not get my mom pissed like my mom is like my mom just like yesterday she was like I'm sick anyways like my so so it's like my mom it's and then so it's like you know, like I'm her own daughter. I'm not going off. So it's like nothing can make her happy. So I'm looking after my mom's feelings as I always am. So why do you think it was so important for her partner, this man, to express his his anger or show? assertiveness in the relationship because i knew it came from a good place see i think that we we do such a disservice to anger we think of anger as like a bad destructive thing that everyone should like learn to control but there are so many things in the world that deserve outrage and anger and indignation i think if we replace the word anger with outrage and indignation we would be more tolerant of it so I know for a fact that this man loves her. Be, like more than she's ever done to deserve, he just loves her. He can't explain it. And he's so good to her. And he tolerates her whenever she like has these meltdowns. Um, and so when she's accusing him of not loving him and not taking care of her, then I feel outrage for him. And he should feel outrage to fight for the truth of how much love there is in their relationship. I think what I often say to patients is like, we think of anger as like fighting against and that's whenever it's bad because it's trying to destroy other people. But if you're fighting for something, then that's whenever you're using anger the right way. And so I want him to be fighting for the truth of how much he loves her to, to like interrupt her attachment, preoccupied attachment style. And I'm saying preoccupied because in the adult attachment literature, they use the word preoccupied instead of ambivalent. And anger can also be useful in that it gives us good information. If we're feeling angry, it's telling us that something is wrong. So yeah. to ignore it does an incredible disservice and doesn't move things forward. Absolutely. In a relationship or politically or whatever right. whatever it is, right? And I think both of them really showed these two different spectrums of anger. One which was completely unboundaried, her anger, you're responsible for my anger, versus him which was like overly boundaried and not expressing it. And I'd also say that um, anger, it's, it signifies that something's wrong, that something needs to be fixed, something needs to be protected. Um, it can also signify that something really important and meaningful is happening right now. That some value of yours that you really care about is being threatened in some way, or it's being activated in a way that you want to live it. So a lot of couples believe that anger is destructive in the relationship and that fighting um, is destructive to the relationship. And so showing anger, you know, and then engaging in any kind of conflict is going to be bad. And sometimes come to therapy being like, oh, we're fighting too much and mm -hmm. we need to stop fighting. We need to not fight at all. As if that is the model of a successful relationship. Um, and I'm curious what you, what you have to say about that because it sounds like you're saying anger is useful, can be useful. And it's unavoidable. And it's unavoidable, yeah. Because it stems from hurt and or misunderstanding or some moments of neglect, I think that there's no way that we can be we can do right by our partner all the time. You know, like uh, in psychology, we always talk about the good enough mother that a good enough mother isn't one who's always right and attuned perfectly. It's actually unhealthy. It's a sign of anxiety and hyper helicopter parenting and all that. A good enough mother does her best, but then she has her own needs, and so she kind of like takes care of herself every once in a while and uh, puts herself first. And then you have to negotiate that. Everyone's needs are fluid, and, and sometimes they sink, and sometimes they don't. And anger sometimes is a way to signify that th one of your needs isn't being met or you're being hurt because of the other person in some way. And that you need to tell that to the other person because how else are they going to fix that unless they know? 
So moving forward with this couple, I mean, how would you help, I guess, him to access anger in a way that's productive and them to communicate in a way that can get through this? That's a really good way to ground the question about like how to help couples through anger. It's like, how do I help this couple mm-hmm. become angry or control anger? Um, with him, I would have him, I would, one, slow things down because that whole like during the headlights paralysis thing that happens to him means that his brain is just like disappearing with from us and so we have to slow it down to like let his brain like feel safe enough to come back and then i would have him really think about all the times that he's um done loving things for her and feel like oh my god i am so good to her I don't deserve to be treated like this at all. This is not this is not fair to me at all. I want him to be able to feel that like this isn't fair. Don't you see how much I do for you? So like if he's coming from that state of like I know how much I love you. So if, no, I'm not going to let you like let your like past interfere with our relationship. So if you can um also sometimes realize that your anger isn't meant to hurt the other person, but meant to protect their love from her trauma that's triggered being triggered in her then it feels like he's using his anger on their behalf so that can help reframe the anger um is that when you talk about in um purpose and getting in touch with your values it seems like that's that's what it aligns with yeah Yeah. and psychologists hate saying it but it all boils down to just feeling like we're loved and we can love other people it's, I know like we don't ever want to use those words as researchers and academics, but that's what it comes down to. Oh, another fascinating thing about him is that when he does access anger, the only anger that he can feel in touch with is, I'm sick and tired of this happening. Which to me is actually his avoidance kicking in, saying don't, make, don't ruffle feathers, don't make things bad. So he still needs to work on like tapping into the right kind of like just anger is what I call it like the in terms of justice and like feeling like he's right to be angry about this and with her um, I would help her to mentalize Um, the preoccupied mind loses touch with what's happening in the moment and gets lost in their own pain and their own anticipation of pain and so I would I wish that I could just like shake her into the present to be like wake up what's really happening in front of you who it's not your mom in front of you look at this guy look at all he's done for you it's like trying to wake the hulk from like being destructive and it's like what's really going on here and that's really hard to do and that's been the work like i keep what you don't see in the audio is that i kick her sometimes whenever she's interrupting him and i'm like ver- non-verbally lecturing her to like pay attention to him I constantly chide her to like, no, stop, listen to him. And then she's like compliantly like, okay, I'll I'll listen. And then she'll try to do it. Um, I also sometimes try to get her to mentalize herself and to understand what's really underneath the rage that she's feeling. And then every once in a while, she'll say something that's really poignant. And I think she needs to start there because she's had such a lifetime of being neglected that she doesn't have the generosity or the filled her cup isn't filled enough to be able to give to another person so she needs to learn to like understand her own rage and her own pain in a compassionate way first and then like kind of like love herself and like heal that for herself and then i think she'll be able to do that for the other person i just work and i hope in time before oh it's gonna take years he leaves her because i mean i think that's the fear when you listen to this is that if he can only take so much, will she be able to do it in a way that's fast enough? And that is exactly why I'm willing to fight her. Because I want this relationship to work so bad. Whenever um, she does something that I know is outrageous, I like, you cannot do that. Like, Like that whole like Excel thing, she texted me a snapshot of this list of ex-girlfriends and their attributes and why he liked them. And I said, like what the fuck are you doing you did you rifle through his stuff does he know that you you found this stuff i said you cannot do that to him and i was so angry at her and she was defensive for a little while and then at some point she's like but i feel hurt he's uh, he's hurting me 
I said, you need to stop reacting to your feelings and prioritizing them because your feelings betray you. And then like 10 minutes later, she said, that's the most profound thing you could have said to me. And she was at, she snapped out of it when she realized that her feelings weren't the truth, that, that they shouldn't drive her reality. Well, it's like that would be painful for anybody to come across the list like that. I know. You know, really. I know, but her, she dug deep But she, deep. it sounds like her response just gets so extreme that it becomes destructive. Rather than being able to say to her partner, listen, I found this list. It's really painful for me. Um, you know, can we talk about this? It's like, fuck you. You know, I don't even know what happens. I, I can only imagine like the explosion I that know. she would. And that she's finding reasons to leave him. She's, she's actually searching for right. him. She's sabotaging I mean, this is why yeah. when you're starting a relationship, you don't ask about prior relationships right away because it's going to immediately trigger a threat. Mm. And you have to respect that people have had lives before they met you. And so she wasn't doing that. I mean, she dug, she went through his computer to look, to find this thing. You know what, we're talking about anger and how anger shows up in this couple. And also, I, you know, I just want to kind of comment that anger also shows up for you too in the room and that she's able to, to kind of handle it quite well, given that you're not only her couples therapist or in these sessions, her couples therapist, but also her individual therapist and how, many people might have really reacted very negatively mm -hmm. um, to their therapist kind of yelling at them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious what your stance is on expressing anger to your patients and, in, and with this couple specifically, or this woman. I model the use of anger for the purpose of fighting for relationships, for better healthiness, for keeping traumatic, traumatic reactions at bay. Um, it doesn't always work. But I warn people that I can be rough, uh, and I try to always explain why I do it. And whenever I know I do it poorly, I feel really bad about it. Um, I, you know that from the way I am in supervision. <laughs> like I'm constantly apologetic because I just can't do it without hurting. It's very powerful, though, because I, I think there's great value. In a sense, it's taking sides. You know, you're taking a stance or taking a Absolutely. stance. You have a stance. And sometimes people, many people we've talked to, um, assume that therapy, couples therapy, um, that, they're, that they're, assume that their couples therapist will be a neutral observer um, to help foster intimacy, but won't really take a stance. Um, or sides. Or sides. Yeah. And you do that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your decision to, to take sides and when you decide to take sides. I um, am, I'm so purpose-filled about I'm here to protect and foster this relationship. So whenever I feel like there's an injury or a miscommunication that's leading to injury, then I immediately have to like, I'm like the goalie for the relationship from being hurt. Um, and so I, I just jump in. I'm like, you can't do that. And I don't know how else to do it. So this is my own crudeness comes out just because I'm like working so fast and so spontaneously. I'm like, that hurt. Uh, you got to do that over again. The way you just look at the way she just reacted that you just hurt her. You can't do that. And um, most people can do They allow me to do it because they give me some authority as their therapist to do that. And their intention is to get better too. And so they're like, help us. I definitely don't think that it would, uh, I could do that in, in front of my friends or something like that. And so I'm always incredibly um, grateful at my patient's own generosity to let me be crude. Um, so it's really not, I don't feel like I personally am that like, miraculous at doing things i just am willing to take the risk of doing things for the sake of their relationship and then my patients just like tolerate who i am as a person authority and when you make it clear that your interventions are always for the stance of the relationship right. it is kind of a neutral stance even if it looks like you're taking one side versus another because of course you're holding people accountable for their behaviors mm. and calling them out for it but it seems like every time you do it, it's because you're trying to protect the relationship between the two of them. One thing when I was listening to this tape is that 
I thought, or I, I initially thought that he was a very securely attached individual that was just tolerating a lot of his partner's frustrations and kind of like past attachment injuries. And I was surprised that he was still with her. And then slowly as the, the session unfolded, it became clear he was a little more avoidant, that he had his own kind of attachment history, his own traumas that were playing into this and wondered whether these two very different attachment styles are in some ways drawn to each other for different types of reasons. And maybe if you could speak a little bit about just different attachment styles and the way that they can play into each other, sometimes in constructive ways and other times in destructive ways. Um, I, I want to start by honoring the truth of his attempt to like be an attentive partner to her. So there is a truth to his secureness. Um, my sense of him, I'm, what I'm going to say is more hypothetical because I haven't worked with him enough to have him confirm that my hypotheses are correct. But my working hypotheses for him for now is that um, he, he played a different role in his family than she did. His role was to be the, the sunshine in everyone's life. Um, he is the male of the family and in, in his culture, he has profound pain that he has still not, I, I don't know, but I imagine because his mother is incredibly ill throughout his whole life and he barely saw her. So she was missing from his life and I would imagine that he yearned for her, but he was raised by his grandparents. But I haven't gotten that sense that he's yearning for her or he feels lost from it. Um, yet um, and then he has a sibling who also is very ill and so he has to play this role of being the one good thing in the family's life the one hope and he's an incredibly successful like smart good-looking guy and I think he just he there's no room for him to feel bad but he's not suffering from it either because he likes this role and it and it feels good He's, he's a pretty happy, carefree, go lucky, happy-go-lucky guy. So his, his avoidance is super slippery. It's only whenever there's real distress. Uh, he's, he might be really good at taking care of another person's distress, like what you're seeing, because of his role of being a caretaker to his family. But I don't know if he would ask for help whenever he's upset or reach out whenever he's upset. But have you noticed, like, it, it, shoot, it requires I know. her I know. to push me over the edge. I know. And then she's like, oh, oh, okay. Like, I know, it's only, it's like steps. Yeah. I fucked them over. Oh, like, right. I'll let I you come never now. fuck you over. It's this, like, it's, it's, not, it's, a, too it's, much. Not, it's not an active thought. It's like this underlying I know. thing that it's like, it, it's. That's why I feel like that you should change your strategy and don't be apologetic apologetic and just be furious from the get-go but it's not even a strategy like that's just like how i am so it's like so then i need to change how i normally react to things and but i think that's good for you no but that's tiring it's like fake it's tiring like i can't do that i think it's actually that i think you being a peacemaker is a defense and you being pissed is more honest and more liberating and freer and less energy if you just un be you. Be offended that she's treating you this way from the get-go. So do you think his history is contributing to him staying in the relationship? Yes, but this is pure psychobabble. And I don't know if it's going to be become a truth in our, in our work if we ever work together. Um, my psychobabbly theory is that um, he's trying his current girlfriend is like one degree like a mom dot two like mm. slightly better than his mom like there's a hope that he can reach her whereas his mother was completely unreachable there's a chance that if he's if he's a good enough son a loving enough person that he can somehow get the other person to recognize him and love him back so he can if he's able to do that he can repair some childhood wound that he had with his mother yeah 
My worry with a couple like this and other couples I've seen where one person is m more traumatized than the other, um, more has more insecure attachment, um, is that the secure person is going to eventually burn out. I know. Um, and it just ha it's, I see that happening again and again. And something um, you know, I wonder about is ultimately couples where both are traumatized, do they do better sometimes? Or should a person who's been very traumatized seek a secure, a securely attached person at the risk of them burning out? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And um, the truth is that at this moment in time when we're doing this interview, they are broken up. Uh, he finally had enough. She did one more thing that was unforgivable in my eyes, and I told her that it was unforgivable. And um, and he said, "I've had enough." No. Yeah. Oh. And it was the, it was so painful for him, and he tried to break up many what times. What did she do? Um, she wouldn't let go of another example of a souvenir thing. So it was the same pattern. Yeah, but it was at a time when he is under a lot of to rest because a family member is ill mm. and so he really needs to like have someone who's going to be there for him and she brought it up at the worst time how's she doing devastated uh it was profound though she came in and she said things that i felt so raw and authentic it was like a secure person it was like so painful what she was she apologized to me for like not listening for letting her emotions take over for not paying attention to uh his own pain and then she apologized to me for how hard it must have been for me to to, to sit through their sessions so she was mentalizing wow. me as well. Mm. It also makes me think of the first session that we listened to where she says something like, you know, it would be a relief if you finally left me right. because I'm in so much pain all the time. Mm. So on the one hand, I hear how she has a lot of insight. On the other, I wonder if it's also a relief for her because this is what she's been anticipating for so long. Yeah, and wishing because it's so painful. And yeah, but then the hope is that she eventually can move past that to be able to have a she relationship because so she badly. wants it so badly yeah. and it's getting in the way yeah she deserves it too and i guess i just take such a long view that i feel like um every relationship is just like self-improvement mm -hmm. um so i think she took a huge step this was her first real relationship and um it I can't imagine how painful this is, and I, it triggers my own memories of like my first heartaches and how painful they were and how crazy and stupid I was. But I wouldn't be able to love the way I do today without having endured the pain that I experienced when I was younger. And that's, it's harder for younger adults to understand, the, take the long view and to see how this is all part of the maturation process, even though it's so painful. So is it possible for someone who's insecurely attached to move into a more secure attached stance? I think so. I did myself and my, a lot of my patients do. And it's not that um, I'm that much different from who I was to begin with, but I'm more authentically who I am moment to moment and um, more aware of my limitations and the impact that it has on people. So it's more about like cultivating mindful awareness, like that whole mentalizing thing that is coupled with a deep sense of like compassion for my own foibles and limitations as a human being. And the fact that I, everyone I'm going to meet has the same level of imperfection and that we're just going to keep like mucking through. I think that's the ideal of life is just to keep mucking through. Mm, and a good reminder. Yeah. And it's a relief yeah. to know that everyone's mucking through. <laughs> yeah. Right. Even stuff. the securely yeah. attached individual still has their mucking around yeah. and still gets triggered and still becomes insecurely attached in moments. It would yeah. be unnatural never to have that experience. Even secure people can feel overwhelming pain, rejection, heartache, mm. loss, and all of that. And it's going to do, it's going to uh, do crazy things to you. Mm -hmm. And you just have to like allow 
crazy times to have crazy reactions. Try to weather them with with the person you love. Well, thank you so thank much you. for joining. Thank you for having me again. That was yeah. fun. Yeah. Come back soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.